Talking Tech Policy is recorded on Ngunnawal lands. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge their continuing connection to country and the ongoing contributions of their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were, among many things, the first Australian tech innovators. How do we make sure that technology makes our lives better? Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, host of the Talking Tech Policy podcast. I'm a lawyer, a diplomat, and until recently, I was Australia's expert to the United Nations on cyber issues. A few months back, I joined the Australian National University to establish the Tech Policy Design Centre. We're launching this podcast because we want to empower more people to get involved in tech policy and in discussions about how technology impacts our society. We're kicking off with a double episode. In part one, you'll hear my interview with Minister Fletcher, the Australian Minister for Communications, Urban Infrastructure, Cities and the Arts, which we recorded at Parliament House on the last sitting day of the year. And to ensure that you don't think this podcast will be a stuffy or a formal affair, in a few places in that interview, we're going to dangle tantalising snippets from the second episode in our launch box set. In part two, we bring together three experts to discuss many of the same themes as in the interview with the minister, but in a slightly more lighthearted manner. If you're new to this subject, you may find it more accessible to listen to that second episode first, but we'll leave that decision to you. For now, let's launch into the interview with the Minister. Minister, thank you very much uh, for giving us your time. I'm very pleased to be with you. We agreed to interview to talk about your book, yes. Governing in the Internet Age. And of course, um, there's a lot happening in your portfolio at the moment. So it's particularly um, a, a great time to have the conversation. And we will get into some of the recent announcements, um, including around the, the troll legislation mm -hmm. and the uh, inquiry um, into big tech that the government announced yesterday. But before we do that, I wanted us to take a step back and contextualise the period of change that we've had, because I think everybody that works in this house knows and understands how difficult governing is, full stop. Mm. But in the context of governing around technologies, the technologies are not new anymore, I think it's fair to say, but comparative to many of the other issues, we don't have the same amount of, of precedent and experience. Well... So when I was asked to write uh, something for the Monash University Press Series in the national interest, I thought about what I wanted to write about and decided that the growth of the internet and what it meant for government would be an interesting topic, particularly because it's now frighteningly 25 years since I first got involved in this space when I started working for then Communications Minister Richard Alston. And so the internet, of course, now, as I chart in the book, is a commonplace part of life and billions of people around the world are, are connected. But that's really only happened over about 25 years. Yeah. Certainly if you take the period within which the internet has gone from being a tool used by a relatively small number of re researchers and academics to becoming a mass market phenomenon. So I thought it was interesting to kind of, I guess, try and look at that period and just make some observations about what that has meant for government. Yeah. And can I ask, because I, I do love to ask this question because it puts it in context for the individual. What was your first interaction with a computer or the first time you heard and used the internet? Because I think when we reflect on those personal stories, it helps to realise how far we've come in such a short period of time. Well, I point to a couple of things. Firstly, my dad was an academic. He finished his career as professor of computational engineering at UNSW. Yeah. So we always had around the house stacks of computer paper and programming cards and so on going back to the sort of late 60s, early 70s. I remember a couple of science projects, which nominally I did, but he largely did <laughs> on a computer. Then probably when I got to business school, I took a class called Management of Media Information and Communications, yeah. which really opened my eyes to the whole sector. And the professor who taught the class was talking a lot about this thing called the internet, which I'd never really heard of before. And we had to go and do some basic exercises, you know, file transfer protocol and uh, gopher. So that was kind of 93, 94. So that probably yeah. started to open my eyes a bit to it, but certainly there was no, at that stage, there were no 
browsers. So you still needed to use some rudimentary computing language yeah. to be able to access the internet. And of course that all changed very, very quickly. And that's one of the factors that was obviously key in the internet then becoming uh, a mass market consumer phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think 1993 was when the World Wide Web as we know it mm. was unleashed upon the world. And so it really isn't that long ago. And without wanting to date myself too much, I think I am part of one of the last generations, at least in Australia, that can experience life before, remember life before yep. the internet and life after the internet. So um, at the Tech Policy Design Centre, the, the key focus of our mission is um, how do we get more people engaged in conversations around technology policy? Mm -hmm. And I think as the Minister for Communications, it's, it's not actually always a given that the minister has deep expertise in their portfolio. And that certainly is the case for you, having been a ministerial advisor, um, parliamentary secretary, also having uh, worked in at Optus. Um, for corporate regulatory affairs. So with the expertise that you bring to this field, can you explain to someone without um, a particular deep expertise in tech policy and someone who doesn't work in the tech industry, why are these issues important to the average Australian? Why should they be focused and, and concerned or um, advocating um, on these issues? I think tech policy issues are enormously important because of the way they underpin the lives that all, almost all of us lead. The internet has become, and particularly social media platforms, have become the digital town square where so many of us interact. Now we take for granted that if we interact in the physical town square that if something goes wrong, uh, we can go to the police, uh, we can, um, you know, if we're assaulted or if we're defrauded, we can um, go to the courts. And people naturally assume the same protections are available to them when they interact in the digital town square, but it's more complicated. Uh, and one of the reasons it's more complicated is that the platforms are giant global businesses operating in 150 plus countries. So one of the questions is which country's laws apply and how do governments require these global businesses to comply with the laws of your country when operating in your country? here for a brief moment to introduce the guests from our second episode. We have Melinda, who is the CEO of the Committee of Economic Development of Australia. We have Stilgarian, a long-standing tech journo with a reputation for speaking truth to power, and Emily, a lecturer in social media at Monash University. I asked them why all Australians should care about tech policy. So we are in the process of completely re-plumbing, rewiring the way the planet handles information, which means effectively we're re-plumbing the way power works. And it has, there's opportunity and there's risk. And my concern is that if we don't really start seriously talking about tech policy and how we show stewardship for technology, um, we're going to end up with a really suboptimal outcome. Uh, because mm. people are going to think that certain things are being looked after and they may not be. There's going to be a potential mismatch or misalignment of expectations in terms of um, the tech sector and government and, and the community. And my experience has been that when that happens, what you tend to get is you know, regulatory backlash um, in a way where you get regulatory overreach which isn't good either. That's particularly compounded in this space, I believe, because I'm not super confident that we've got the level of knowledge and understanding across policymakers and politicians um, mm. to get the nuance right in regulations. Well, look, I think that the reason people should care about tech, tech policy is because they use tech. You know, <laughs> um, it's this is something uh, if we think about what tech policy is, it's a, it's a series of decisions about how technology works in a particular context. The people who are trying to make the rules about that certainly deserve interrogation and attention. And now back to the minister. So let's talk about some of the measures that the government has implemented to look at how we can engage in the online town square, mm. if you like. And I think the most topical one at the moment is the legislation um, or the draft bill that was introduced or released yesterday around tackling anonymous uh, online trolling. Yep. In your book, you talk about um, governments gaining more confidence mm. to legislate. And I think that is unequivocally the case, that we are seeing more confidence. Mm -hmm. What I'm interested in and, and the focus of the work that we're doing at the Tech Policy Design Centre is to look at 
are governments being effective in yep. their regulation now? Because I think step one, let's mm. admit that we should be regulating. Step two, let's regulate in a, in a way that achieves its objective. So you use the example of cars and mm -hmm. seatbelts and yep. the evolution of regulatory um, technology. Cars didn't have seatbelts to begin with, then um, regulators stepped in. In the case of seatbelts, there's a clear evidence that seatbelts saves lives. Mm -hmm. With the anonymous online trolling, has the government got a, or do you have evidence that the anonymity online and unmasking of anonymous trolls will actually lead to less of that behaviour, that anonymity will actually help us mm -hmm. to reduce it? Look, I think there's ample evidence that online harassment, bullying, abuse has very detrimental consequences. Un undoubtedly. Yes. Including mental health consequences. Sadly, there have been uh, instances of suicides and so on. One of the principles we've sought to apply is regulating just enough. Now, if we go to the legislation that we released an exposure draft of, yes of yesterday, the anti-trolling mm. legislation, the primary framework that that's dealing with is the question of defamation. So it's, it's the law is well established that if I write in a newspaper or say on television or radio, you know, um, that, that Paul Fletcher is a, is a lying scoundrel and make other comments that are damaging mm. to the reputation of, of a person, then the person who has been the subject of those comments has a right to sue in defamation. And then the law is well established as to whether a case is made out and so on. Mm. Um, that same right should be available wherever the defamatory comments are made, whether they're made online as well. But there are major practical barriers to commencing legal action mm. at the moment. Um, at the same time, we've seen a significant increase in the volume of people complaining about these issues because the internet has given many more people voice, a proportion of the comments that are made will be problematic, including a proportion will be mm. defamatory. So the aim is fundamentally to create strong incentives for the platforms mm. to set up a complaint scheme under which if I consider that I've been defamed by somebody who said something online, I can go to the platform and say, connect me with that person, give them the opportunity to take it down, or alternatively give them the opportunity to, to ask them to release their contact details so that I can commence legal action against them should I choose to do that. And then there'll also be a power for the federal courts to issue an order mm. uh, requiring the disclosure of information. So what we're trying to do again is regulate just enough. We want to create mm. strong incentives for the platforms mm. so in turn uh, they can put in place an efficient complaint scheme. And now over to our resident pod experts. So what's really going on here is a new bill that's being discussed in terms of its power to address trolling. And I feel that the term trolling is, is used very deliberately here to simply encompass a whole lot of um, malicious online behaviour. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that we're even discussing a, abuse and harassment and defamation under the umbrella of trolling because, you know, I mean, in, in my research, I really understand trolling as much more of a playful behaviour and, and one that's often satirical and fun and, uh, and I guess trying to really speak back to power in a way that's mischievous. I understand harassment and abuse as things that, sure, can overlap with trolling, Absolutely. Um, some trolling is very unkind. But uh, harassment and abuse are not playful ways to poke fun at the powerful. They're crimes. Uh, it's about protecting uh, the feelings of powerful white men uh, by wrapping it in a thing that makes it sound like it's protecting women and people of colour and other vulnerable folk. We see this solution come up again and again. Um, some bright spark suddenly gets the idea, hang on, if we just made everybody use their real names, everyone would be nice to each other on social media, which just astounds me that this is still a conversation that's happening because we know that that just doesn't work. Uh, there's so many instances of really vile abuse and harassment that happen under people's real name and that actually there's a, there are hugely, huge and hugely important arguments to suggest that 
people who are anonymous are doing so for really valid, really important reasons. And now back to the minister. So I understand that you want to regulate mm. just enough uh, and also that the behaviour, um, there is, I think, very few people in Australia who would want to see this type of behaviour continue. No one is mm. saying the behaviour of trolls is acceptable. But I guess the question is, will the uh, removing anonymity actually achieve the objective? And I, I use here the example of in Korea. So yes. back in 2012, the Koreans uh, introduced similar legislation mm-hmm. um, and actually the Korean courts ended up overruling that legislation mm-hmm. on the basis that um, it actually, there was no demonstrable impact of that, uh, of the uh, removing anonymity on reducing that type of malicious online behaviour. So I guess it's more a question of, is the target of anonymity actually going to achieve the objective that you're setting here? I would define the target as being not allowing people to make comments online with impunity, beyond beyond the reach of normal uh, legal and regulatory safeguards that have long existed. Mm. And I also make the point that this is part of a suite of laws, and earlier this year we passed the Online Safety Act, that will come into effect in January next year. That deals with uh, serious cyber abuse of adults and it complements the scheme we already have in place for cyberbullying of children. It's a pretty high threshold there, so that if something, if an online statement uh, would be considered by a reasonable person to be menacing, harassing or offensive and intended to cause harm, so Mm. quite a high threshold, but if it meets that threshold, the e-safety commissioner can determine that it is cyberbullying material, cyber abuse material directed at an Australian adult and direct that it be taken down. Mm-hmm. So the point is that's one part of the framework to deal with unacceptable material online. And then another part of the framework we're now adding in is to deal with the issue of defamation. So not necessarily proposing, uh, constituting a direct threat to somebody but attacking somebody's reputation and at least giving people in practical terms the opportunity to, should they choose to, seek redress. So anonymity is one of the practical hurdles today which means that the normal recourse to the law of defamation that is available in practical terms today it's quite hard to access when it comes to comments made online. I would really like to drill down a little bit more on the the way that this new law will interact with Mm. the e-safety provisions. But before we do that, one of the other aspects of this new legislation that's been introduced, it was in part a response to the High Court case um, involving VOLA, which had a, 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 um, the result being that people who um, have social media pages become responsible for defamatory comments uh, made on those pages, whether or not you made them Mm. and whether or not you knew they were there. And this legislation is saying, well, now um, the platform uh, will be responsible for that defamatory comment rather than me as Mm -hmm. the owner of the Facebook page, for example. One of the concerns that I've seen about that provision, whilst it's great that there's certainty that individual Mm -hmm. users of platforms are not going to be held liable for comments that they're not making themselves, that it might disincentivise people to do content moderation, that it may actually end up that whilst the objective is to reduce this type of Mm. unacceptable behaviour and trolling, that actually it will result in less content moderation because we've moved the burden. What do you say in response to that? Well, you're right to say that part of what this bill does is respond to the law as it was set out in the High Court case in Vola, which said, if you have a Facebook page, whether you're an ordinary citizen or a business, and a third party makes a comment on that, which is defamatory, Mm. you are liable. And our policy judgment is that's not the right uh, allocation of liability. So what this bill will do, should it pass into law, is that the prima facie liability will sit with the social media platform, uh, but what it then says is there's a set of mechanisms um, to deal with if you have a complaint scheme, if you disclose user identity information when it's sought to commence proceedings, then um, you can avoid that liability. Now, it really comes down to the question of who is, who is best placed to manage these issues. 
And the platforms clearly have a technological capability that individual users do not. It's their business model, their best place to uh, identify how to manage these risks. Mm. Um, and so that's really the judgment that we've made. Mm. I mean, I, I make the point, it's perfectly possible for the platforms in their terms of use to say to people who have a page, well, you know, these will be your responsibilities. Um, so th there's, again, what we're trying to do is regulate just enough. Mm. The Act or the Bill sets out clearly what we want to achieve, but much of the operational detail mm. is going to be a question for the platforms and there may be many different ways of achieving it. Mm. So I think um, my scepticism about um, the efficacy of anonymity aside, I would like to acknowledge the fact that um, in order to unmask people, it will require a court order. Mm. And I think that is an important safeguard that is reflected in this legislation. So I think it's being uh, fair on uh, in all of my commentary. Okay, um, let's move on and, and talk a little bit about the e-safety uh, legislation that passed and particularly around um, the adult cyberbullying yes. provision which is the fundamentally new aspect of that legislation and I, I, my question is how and and you have touched on this a little how that legislation will interact with the legislation around unmasking trolls which yes. I think is actually a bit of a misnomer because not all trolling behavior is defamatory for example but the question I have is how often do you think the this new law would be used if it were to be passed in comparison to the cyberbullying and when you put them side by side the cyberbullying does seem to it has a lower burden so it's you're not requiring um, defamation mm -hmm. which is the barrier to entry if you like is less you go to, through the e-safety commissioner mm -hmm. rather than through a court mm -hmm. it's a 24-hour um, period which is something that mm -hmm. is new in that legislation as opposed to a long drawn-out yep. court process it's free yep. as opposed to defam uh, as opposed to defamation yep. which is costly so do you think that this legislation putting aside its the effectiveness around anonymity do you think it will actually be used when we have such a strong new legislation in cyberbullying and I, I recognize the irony of sort of critiquing one proposal by saying how strong mm. something else that you have uh, introduced is there are certainly going to be online comments or posts which could potentially attract both pieces of legislation. Mm. But the principal difference between them, in my view, is that the bar to be able to access the cyberbullying provisions is quite high. It needs to be material that a reasonable person would consider menacing, harassing or offensive mm -hmm. and intended to cause harm. So it's very much about a comment directed at an individual with a that would be concluded to have a particular intent, mm. there will be material which is a comment about somebody which potentially is defamatory but which does not meet the test of intended to cause harm. I mean, think about an online restaurant review. Mm. And as we know over the years, restaurant reviews have, have from time to time caused actions in defamation. So, you know, if somebody posts, you know, I went to that cafe Paul Fletcher is running, it's hopeless, the bloke obviously can't cook to save his life. That would not be, you know, menacing, harassing or offensive intended to cause harm. But there would be a question as to whether if I was, you know, as the subject of a comment, whether I felt that had done sufficient damage to my reputation, I wanted to take action in defamation. So mm -hmm. there's potentially some overlap. But I think the adult cyberbullying provisions, as I say, there's quite a high threshold and it, it really is about intended to cause harm and th th that a reasonable person would conclude it was intended mm. to cause harm. Mm. So when you describe those thresholds, I mean, I, I think defamation is a cause of action that is, is of course available, but is there's a high cost bar yes. of getting involved in that. The threshold, as you describe it, the cyberbullying mm. is quite high. Yes. Do you think there's more to be done just in terms of social norms that it will perhaps have more effect than regulation and legislation in addressing the type of behaviour that you're talking about? Look, I think it needs to be tackled on several fronts. One of the reasons that we're talking about anonymity is because there is a perception that what you do online is anonymous and so you can say and do things mm. that you would never say to somebody face to face. Now, I accept the proposition that there are certainly trolls who are quite happy to have their identity known and it seems to be part of their motivation. But there is, I think, good evidence that we also see people uh, engaging in 
pretty abusive commentary online because they think they're protected by a cloak of anonymity. So one of the things we want to do is improve the norms of behaviour and as well as the uh, anti-trolling legislation in the Online Safety Act, the Safety Commissioner has been given powers to require the platforms to provide the identity information they have about a user account. Mm. So that might well be used, for example, if there was somebody who was engaging in um, systematic abuse and the objective was to identify that person and perhaps um, pursue that, pursue penalties, which the Safety Commissioner has the power to issue, as a means of helping communicate to the broader community, well, look, don't assume you're anonymous online because um, that's not, that's very often not the case. And are you concerned of the privacy implications or the security of the information that is going to be collected either for this, this mm -hmm. legislation or for the online mm -hmm. safety legislation? Uh, look, there's absolutely a balance when it comes to issues of privacy and security. And clearly there are circumstances where it would not be desirable that somebody's identity be revealed. That's why, as you rightly point out, under the draft legislation, it would require a court order and there'll be a need to balance up these considerations, or through the voluntary complaint scheme, it would require the consent mm. of the person who posted the material. Similarly, when it comes to the Safety Commissioner's powers, again, as a regulator, she'll be in a position, um, Julian Mangrata, a Safety Commission, her, her staff will be in a position to weigh up those issues. So yes, these things absolutely do need to be weighed up. Mm. And I thought it was interesting um, looking at the legislation yesterday that the information that you're requiring, um, and this is the um, anonymous uh, troll legislation, is name, phone numbers and email address, which is largely information that many people would give mm -hmm. um, to a platform provider anyway. And it, the in the Korean case, actually, the, the legislation resulted in a massive data breach. And that was part of um, the, the concern around that legislation. And I, I personally was was comforted a little to see that the, the requested information was relatively narrow. But I do note that there's provision there for that to be expanded via legislative rules, which does raise um, a few concerns that it may be expanded over time. And I suppose the point I'd make is that, again, as we consult on the detail, we can work through all of these issues, including, for example, part of the question is, okay, what information do you need to commence legal action mm. and that's a thing that the courts can rule on or that mm. we can determine through legislation that the courts then apply mm. and if the comment or post that you're seeking to make the subject of defamation action has been made online by a user then uh, the holder of a user account then the capacity to commence legal process to serve uh, the commencing documents if you can use those online tools, then arguably you don't need uh, some of the other things like physical address and so on that historically the courts have used. Mm. So those are all issues to be worked through. Yeah, and I, I think they're very important issues. Mm. Um, likewise, I think with respect to the, the evidence about um, how much of the trolling behaviour is actually anonymous, there's quite a lot of research that that behaviour, a lot of anonymous, that most of the malicious trolling behaviour is actually people under their real names. So I'll be very interested to see how that um, mm -hmm. progresses. Let's move on to... Um, another element of um, the e-safety legislation and particularly the, the provisions around the basic online yes. safety expectations. This is happening as a, as a subset along with the development of industry codes. Yep. One of the things that perhaps has been most topical about that legislation um, or that um, uh, direction, sorry, that's sitting underneath is the reference there to encryption. Mm -hmm. And I know this is something that um, has been a strong criticism of, of the Morrison government mm. is your approach to encryption. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it briefly yes. uh, in the book. And I think if we were to sum up the main criticism of it, it's that the approach to encryption seems to be the bad guys use encryption. We need it to um, prevent access to child pornography or terrorist mm -hmm. behaviours. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we need this legislation. And there are many who would say that actually, you know, encryption also has a very important purpose in our societies, including, for example, to underpin our financial systems. Mm -hmm. The banks wouldn't mm -hmm. work without encryption. Yep. Um, so how do you respond to that criticism? And are you 
also in the same token concerned that some countries outside of Australia um, would be watching what we're doing around encryption or anonymity and those countries might not have the same human rights protections or um, respect for rule of law and how you balance that uh, in the global environment which is something you also yeah. touch on. So the, the idea behind the basic online safety expectations is that the parliament through the Minister for Communications on behalf of the Australian people is saying to the platforms, these are the things that we expect you will do. And we ask you to report against them and there are penalties for failing to report. And it's things like having uh, an easy to use complaints system. Um, and I guess a range of other things that we would say based upon the collective the experience, particularly of the eSafety Commissioner in dealing with platforms, as new platforms emerge, you know, TikTok came along only three or four years ago, for example, now very, very popular, uh, there'll be others. Mm. These are the things we expect you to do mm. and it's intended to be quite a practical workable yep. document. And, and I would say, I, I actually commend you on that document. I think it is a, a very useful document to set the expectations yeah. for the platforms. Yeah. But I guess my question is more specifically on the encryption point, because part of those documents were saying that you these expectations apply also to encrypted communications. Mm. Look, to kind of explain why it's important, when you go about your business at home, at work, wherever, there's a lock on the door. There's a lock on the filing cabinet, uh, a passcode on your phone. Uh, when your information is in transit over the internet or stored somewhere on the internet, encryption is that lock for you on the internet. You have the key to the lock. You can decide what to unlock and show to people and so on. So the argument then becomes there are valid reasons for you to be forced to unlock stuff like in the same way you can be forced to unlock your house because the cops have a search warrant because they have a reasonable suspicion that something criminal is going on inside that's not something which anti-encryption people are arguing at least the ones genuinely arguing the issue the question then becomes yeah but who who can demand that and moreover uh, with things like uh, the Toller Act and such. There's the idea that other people are, are allowed to have a copy of the key or the lock can be uh, not broken but weakened so that someone with locksmithing skills knows how to open it even if they don't have a key. So the question from there is, well, hang on, if, if you've weakened the lock, it doesn't have to be the good guy locksmith who can undo it. The bad guy locksmith could do it too. Uh, and and under what circumstances, even if the good guy does it, how is that approved? And it's something that tends to be glossed over quite a lot. I find the fact that if, all of a sudden you start talking about encryption as if it's something that suggests you're hiding something. I just think, again, there's just these sort of mixed messages out there. It's a tool that has good intent in some instances, bad intent in others. Let's put the proper governance arrangements around it. And there should be a high bar um, for, for unpicking someone's lock, to use, to use the analogy as far as I'm concerned. And, and honestly, if I go and have a look at ASIC's own cyber resilience good practice advice, it says... The progressive companies are already using encryption to make sure that the right people have access uh, and only the right people have access to data for the right reasons. So, mm. um, so I think, again, we've got to understand when are we talking about it, when's the tool being used and for what purpose, and then calibrate um, the appropriate policies and legislative uh, regulatory responses accordingly. And, and I am always in favour of making sure you've got lots of checks and balances there because otherwise I do think to use a terrible pun, we're on a slippery slope. If it's encrypted, how are, the, how are platforms to... Well, again, we're looking at it through a safety lens. So if you're a teenager in a, an online chat group, uh, be, it, be it WhatsApp or whatever the service is, and there are abusive comments directed at you, 
seen by 50 or 100 people in the group. Yeah. I guess the basic point we're making is it's not good enough to say, oh, it's encrypted. So, you know, that's, that's, that's beyond the realm mm. of, I guess, regulatory concern here. On the contrary, it's, if it has the effect, if it's seen on the screen by the user, um, then the fact that it's encrypted, mm. um, we're saying, look, you've got to have regard to the safety of your users mm. and, you know, we've got a set of expectations here, we've got a set of requirements and you can't just say, oh, well, it's encrypted, so forget all that. Yeah, so I understand what you're saying, mm. particularly with respect to a lot of the, the popular social media mm. platforms are, are either already end-to-end -end yes. encryption or becoming encrypted. So I, I understand the concern, I understand young children are using mm. these and there is bullying behaviour. Yes. But at the same time, something is either encrypted or it's not. Sure. And as um, a good friend of mine often said, it's maths. Yes. You, it's either encrypted or yep. it's not. Um, and so it does raise particular challenges because if you weaken encryption for something like this, you're also potentially weakening or most likely weakening encryption for things like the banking system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is a, a difficult balance. And sure. I suspect you might, well, I'll give you the opportunity to say something more, but it is uh, a concern for many people when they're looking at the approach for Australia around these things. Well, certainly in terms of the basic online safety expectations, the way that we would think about this is these are things that if you're providing a service to millions of Australians and hundreds of millions of people around the world, but certainly our interest is in the safety of Australians, mm. we certainly hope that our approach will be of interest in other countries and the evidence is that it is, then um, again, I, I, I can't put it any more simply than yeah. the fact that it's encrypted is not a get out of jail free card. It, it doesn't allow you to say, well, we don't have to worry about safety. Yeah. Quite the contrary. Okay, great. So I would like to come back to the point about um, international mm. exporting of yes. our policy. But before we do that, um, given how much um, work and attention and, and by yourself, by the eSafety Commissioner, Julia Mann-Grant, who does an excellent job. The announcement of the inquiry mm -hmm. into um, big tech um, I, comes as a little bit of a surprise in terms of the amount of work that has been done. This new legislation mm. uh, will come into play um, in January. Why is the inquiry needed now, given the changes that are about to come in? And why do you really think you can do this issue justice in three months over a Christmas period after the year that everybody has had? <laughs> I think there's several reasons why. Firstly, the eSafety Commissioner is about to have significantly expanded powers. Yeah. There's a number of codes that are being made. We're finalising the basic online safety expectations. So it is an opportunity to, I guess, pressure test with the community what are your present experiences of online services, parents, schools, children and other stakeholders and those findings will undoubtedly inform the way that the Safety Commissioner exercises her powers. Uh, secondly, we've clearly seen in the revelations by the Facebook whistleblower Francis Horgan a troubling indications of business practices uh, the way that the algorithms uh, operate and in particular the mental health implications of that. So are users encouraged to go more and more down a rabbit hole of a particular subject? Um, you know, an anorexic teenage girl seeing more and more content about dieting and, and, and body image and so on. So uh, those are some very significant issues that we think need to be examined. And we also think it's an opportunity for the tech companies to um, come forward and talk about what their safety practices are um, and explain to Australians how they're keeping them safe. So this is a very important set of issues. It's clear to me as a politician and to my colleagues from the number of times this gets raised with us, it's of big concern to families and parents and, and, mm. to, and to, to kids. And so, I couldn't think of anything that is more appropriate for the parliament to be looking at than an issue, an issue like this, which so much goes to the safety of Australians. Melinda, do you have any thoughts on this? Oh, where to start? <laughs> <laughs> 
Where to start? Let me start with the practicalities of it. It's December. Uh, it's yeah. going to report in February. Um, yeah. I think like the rest of Australia, a big bunch of us are having a big chunk of time off. Yeah. Um, so let's call this a four-week inquiry. It, it's just a ridiculous time frame. I think you know there are some concerns and some issues that probably do really need to be explored. You know from our previous conversations that I'm a big fan of actually transparency and independent assessment of what the implications of um, what they're doing, of emerging tech, of the structure of businesses, all the rest of it. I'm, I'm, all, I'm up for that, but I think a four-week inquiry doesn't make sense uh, at, in anyone's book. Um, and it also, I mean, as a policy person, I know I keep saying this, but we actually don't think that the lead-up to elections is a really good time to be discussing serious policy. Um, it's not It's not an environment in which you get nuanced conversation. It's an environment where you rule um, things in and out um, in very simplistic and blunt ways. So I, I don't think it's, I don't think any of that um, bodes well in terms of what we get out of it. I think there are very legitimate reasons to shine a light on big tech. I just don't think you can do that in the timeframe that we have um, for this inquiry in a meaningful way. And as such, I think it's doing it a disservice. So I don't disagree with you. I think it's just a question of the timing yeah. and the length of the time. And it seems to me that you're indicating that there might be further action that comes out of this beyond the new e-safety uh, legislation that comes into play in, in January. Sure. Well, I'm saying a couple of things. Firstly, that under the powers the e-safety commissioner now has, she's got quite a degree of discretion, quite a number of regulatory tools. This inquiry will be very useful in informing for her how she might use those tools. Mm -hmm. But yes, of course, if we identify other areas where we think action is needed, we certainly stand ready to do that. These uh, social media services are such a prevalent part of the lives of Australians. Many hours a day, many millions of us from quite young ages. Mm -hmm. So these are uh, very important issues. We've certainly over the last few years done a lot of work in putting a regulatory framework around them but we certainly don't think that the job is done. Great and um, let's touch on the media bargaining mm. code because um, it's something that you talk about in in the book quite extensively and also I think is is one of the capstone pieces of policy. Everyone will remember it we had the standoff with Google and Facebook mm. um, government um, held your ground and we now have a situation where Google and Facebook are paying substantial amounts of money to a small number of media providers um, in Australia outside of the code though. So the code allows for the uh, negotiations mm. to happen outside of the code. Now, on the one hand, that's a victory because that money was not being um, paid to news companies in Australia before the government mm -hmm. took this action. I'm focused on the efficacy point mm -hmm. and if the obligation or the uh, intent of that legislation was to um, shore up and ensure that we have good journalism in Australia, is there evidence that the money that is being given to media companies is being used uh, to support media? And then the subset of that conversation is, um, is this actually inadvertently entrenching large media companies in Australia because they're the ones that have been, the deals have been done with, you know, the, the large uh, media companies, not with um, the small or startup um, environment uh, companies. So I'm not disputing the money is now mm. being paid and that was the objective, but it's more about the objective of improving and um, shoring up Australian journalism. Yeah, the underlying public policy objective was, first of all, the competition policy issue that you have news media businesses competing with Google and Facebook for advertising revenue, yet Google and Facebook were using content paid for and generated by news media businesses mm. and not acquiring an ordinary commercial terms. Mm. So first of all, there was the competition policy issue. But secondly, there was the media policy issue. In a liberal democracy, you want a diverse, vigorous media, and that was significantly under threat from the dominance of the platforms. Particularly with the news bargaining code, Part of me feels like just saying to those large legacy news outlets, yeah, well, you made your mistakes 25 years ago. Stuff yous. You screwed it up. Let's move on. Reap what you sowed or failed to sow back in the 1990s. Um, you know, we, we, we stopped propping up 
automobile manufacturing in Australia when it was clearly uneconomical. So why are we propping up these uh, industrial age media factories when there are so many more nimble, smarter and cost effective uh, possible ways of doing it? We've now had, I think, about uh, around 15 deals that Google has done, slightly fewer for Facebook, significant dollar amounts. A couple of them have been publicly disclosed by listed mm. companies. Uh, and there is good evidence that they're using the money to hire more journalists. News Corp has been advertising for journalists and uh, in some cases specifically linking it to news media bargaining code. I noticed in the Australian Financial Review just the other day um, an ad for, for journalists and mm. saying for the first time they were increasing their newsroom for some years. So I think there is pretty clear evidence mm. that this money is being used to hire more journalists. On the question of the size of companies, I guess the way we looked at it was the journalists around Australia, what's going to be the most effective way to maintain and increase their number? Mm. And clearly the most effective way is to go to the biggest employers of journalists. That being said, uh, there is quite a, a wide range of businesses that have received uh, funding and the uh, revenue, the, the minimum amount of annual revenue you need to earn to qualify to seek to negotiate under the code is 150000 So mm. it can certainly cover quite small businesses. I mentioned before our principle was to regulate just enough mm. to get the outcome that we wanted. And so we think it is a very positive thing that these outcomes have been done through voluntary commercial negotiation. But clearly the reason the platforms have come to the table to negotiate is because they know that if they don't, they will find themselves in the compulsory bargaining process. Mm. I think um, we'll all be watching closely to see who else um, uh, has these agreements entered into. Mm. Final question for you, because I'm conscious we're coming up to time. One of the most common criticisms of government regulation in this space is that for better or for worse, and this is not intended necessarily as a criticism of politicians or of public servants, but they often don't understand the technologies that they're regulating um, or they don't understand them as well as industry does. And I think that was evident, for example, with the media bargaining code, where one of the main criticisms of it was that there was a misunderstanding, for example, of the nature of the internet and links. So two part question. One, um, would you do it? Would you uh, craft that legislation differently knowing what you know now. You've been in mm. um, conversations with heads of Google mm. and Facebook, for example, around the technical part, not the intent, but the, the technical drafting of it. And how do we upskill to address this asymmetry of knowledge where actually there is a real legitimate public purpose for government to be legislating and taking action in this space? And I encourage and commend that. But how do we make sure that that regulation and, and regulatory interventions achieve their purpose with respect to the, the actual technical applications when that knowledge is mm. largely held by the, the industry partners? On the first question of the specific legislation, would we do it differently? I would say no. We did consult pretty extensively. We went through, I think, three successive drafts in which there was consultation. Uh, and we did that in a very conscious way. And bear in mind, it started with a process of the ACCC developing the digital platforms inquiry. Mm. The final report was several hundred pages. So that was about an 18 month process. We then uh, started on some development of the code, uh, extensive as I say, extensive consultation, successive drafts and so on. But I'd also make the point that it does suit the tech companies to say, oh, government, you don't understand. If you seek to regulate us, your country will be a technological backwater. And I, I guess I've heard that most of the time I've been in Parliament and it's a convenient thing to say if you want to avoid being regulated, but... But I, I think there's a little... So I, I agree. I think the assessment of technological backwater is a, a move that the tech companies often use. But my experience, and I worked in the public service mm. for the last 10 years on these issues, and I think the level of knowledge is very asymmetrical in favour of industry. So I do think it is a fair comment in terms of um, expertise. So the second point I would make is that to some extent the solution to that problem lies in the hands of the tech sector and indeed I welcome the fact that just in the last few months the sector in Australia has come together to establish the Tech Council which now has 100 members 
including some of the biggest Australian tech companies, Atlassian, Canva, mm. uh, amongst others, at the very highest levels. Uh, and indeed, they had an event in Canberra just a couple of days ago. Scott Farquhar and Mike Cannon-Brooks from Atlassian were there, Cliff Obrecht from uh, yeah. Canva. Um, so to have owners of these very large Australian tech yeah. businesses in Canberra walking the halls of parliament and engaging at all levels is a very good thing. So yes, uh, the business, the, the tech sector is complex. The um, technology is uh, fast moving. And so I think it's a very good thing that that is happening. Um, and, you know, government always seeks to, I guess, understand the industries that it, it regulates. It's not, a, it's not a perfect process. I'll readily concede that, but um, I think I think there is improving mutual understanding, I would say. <laughs> I think that is very fair. And in closing, I have I have uh, focused on a lot of the um, challenging parts mm. of the work of the government in this conversation, but I would like to end by acknowledging that one of the, the things that is particularly heartening for me in this field is that there are more governments around the world waking up and stepping up to the fact that um, we can change and shape technology for the public good. And that is something that I am particularly passionate about. Um, so please accept my critiques of you in the spirit that they're intended Look, in I, terms of... Uh, it's, it's a very important point. In, in the book, I seek to emphasise my strong belief that the internet is a force for absolutely. economic, cultural, social... Yeah educational good and that the world is a much better place thanks to this marvellous innovation. Uh, that doesn't mean it should be beyond regulation, but we shouldn't regulate it more than we need to. And government should also be very focused on how do we use the internet to deliver better services for citizens uh, where it can deliver huge benefits. So the internet, absolutely a big positive. Governments need to engage with it, uh, but I'd much rather live in a world where so many of us are online than not. Absolutely. Me too. And I'd much rather live in a world with regulation that is effective. And that's our mission at the Tech Policy Design Centre. So thank you very much, Minister Thanks, Fletcher, Jeanette. for giving us your time. Pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. And that's a wrap for the interview with Minister Fletcher. Please tune in to the second episode of our launch box set, where Melinda, Stilgarian, Emily and I have some fun responding to many of the same questions that I asked the Minister. If you like the pod, please, please, please leave us a review or rate us. I'm told it's especially important early on. And please do also let us know what questions you would like to hear answered in future episodes of the podcast. Email us at techpolicydesign at anu.edu.au. We're making this podcast for you, so please tell us what you want to hear. Get in touch and get involved. Talking Tech Policy is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre of the Australian National University. This episode was produced by Anna Davies. Tanvi Nair and Amy Denman provided invaluable research support. Ben Gowdy provided support that only an avid podcast listener can provide. You can follow us on Twitter at Tech Policy Design or on LinkedIn, Tech Policy Design Centre, or Google us and follow the links. Thank you for listening and please rate us or leave us a review.